This year, the Easter story comes to us from the Gospel according to St. Luke. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, the women came to the tomb taking the spices that they'd prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men in dazzling clothes stood beside them. The women were terrified and bowed their faces to the earth, but the men said to them, Why seek ye the living among the dead? He's not here, for he has risen. Remember how he told you when he was with you in Galilee that the Son of Man must be handed over to sinners and be crucified, and on the third day rise again. Then they remembered his words, and returning from the tomb, they told all this to the eleven disciples and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary, the mother of James, who told this to the apostles. But these words seemed to the apostles to be an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and then he went home amazed at what he had seen. Four of the 13 documents that claim to be from uh, the pen of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament uh, claim to be written from prison. I've been preaching this sermon series called Letters from Prison. In the Gospels, Easter good news comes from the cemetery. In the epistles, it comes from a prison cell. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of all glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe God put this power to work in Christ when God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. And God has put all things, all things under Christ's feet and has made Christ the head over all things. Please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Batman and Superman in the same movie. How could we possibly be so lucky? This actually reminded me of something that happened a long time ago. You're going to think I made this up, but every word is true. This happened a long time ago. You know, but every 10 years or so, Jesus becomes the... Uh, hot topic in the media for about a week and he lands on all the front pages of the newspapers and the covers of magazines this happened when dan brown wrote the da vinci code and it happened when mel gibson made his jesus movie and it happened about 20 years ago when america was arguing about the jesus seminar you probably don't know what that is but we preachers remember the jesus seminar and so 20 years ago during holy week jesus ended up on the cover of all three major american news weeklies time newsweek and u.s news and Re uh, world report and of course i knew i needed to own these magazines so i went to this great little place in grand rapids michigan where i was living at the time called socrates news center 
great title for a great little place where you could get coffee from Guatemala or Kenya or Vietnam and the Times from LA, London and New York, not to mention the Chicago Sun-Times, the Philadelphia Inquirer and the National Enquirer. You kids won't remember this, but there actually was a time when they put newspapers and magazines on dead trees. So anyway, I go to Socrates News Center to find these three major news weeklies and I'm looking at all the racks that line this store on three walls and I can't find Time, Newsweek or US News and World Report anyway, anywhere. So I go to the lady behind the cappuccino counter and I ask her where they are and she said, oh, they've sold out days before. They're just flying off the shelves this week. I don't know what happened. Did they do a swimsuit issue or something? And I said, no, not exactly. And she said, well, who's on the cover this week anyway? And I said, Jesus. And she said, you don't need to swear. And I said, no, Jesus is on the cover. And she said, well, what did he do? And I thought about telling her, well, he rose from the dead, but I thought probably she knew this already. So I said, well, they're arguing about him again. And she said, oh, I should have saved one of these issues for myself. My daughter is just beginning to ask me about Jesus. We don't go to church much, and I didn't know what to tell her. She's three years old, and she said to me, is Jesus, Mom, is Jesus like Batman? And I said to her, no, I think Jesus is more like Superman. She said, is that about right? And I said, that's a start. And it's hard to make sense of the resurrected Lord at Easter time for the unlettered or for the lettered, right? It never happened before and it will never happen again till the end of time. A friend came up to the great late Harvard chaplain Peter Gomes and said, I don't like Good Friday, but it makes sense. I love Easter, but it doesn't. Yes? We hate Good Friday, but we get it. And we love Easter, but we don't get it, that is. Crucifixions, we've seen a plenty, but not many resurrections, at least the way the Gospels tell the story. As we were reminded by those horrible images from Brussels earlier this week. And preachers are always wondering if they're getting through on Easter morning. But, of course, I take comfort from the fact that thus it ever was and thus it ever shall be. Even the first Easter sermon drew blank stares from its hearers. This is the way Luke tells the story. Off to the tomb go Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and another woman named Mary bringing spices meant to delay for a little while the decay that will inevitably set in. And on the way there, they're probably wondering how they're going to accomplish this mission. They're probably wondering what they're going to do with this huge disc-shaped rock, this slab of granite shaped like a poker chip or like a lozenge set into a stone runner in the earth beneath, like the ancient equivalent of a sliding glass door, except there are no ball bearings, and this granite slab is bigger than a Mini Cooper. But then, of course, when they get to the grave, problem solved. The stones rolled away, which just sets the stage for another problem, no body to anoint with spices. Just then, two angels show up and help the women solve this riddle. Actually, Luke says it's just two men, but they've got this dazzling white clothing. They're clearly not from around here, and so they're probably splendid Vanny envoys from the great blue beyond. 
He's not here, they say. He's risen. Why seek ye the living among the dead? They ask the women. In other words, what are you doing in a cemetery for Christ's sweet sake? He's not here. And so the women go flying back to wherever the 11 remaining disciples are holed up, maybe in that upper room where they shared that last meal with Jesus. And they tell their story. The stone rolled away. The body missing. The phosphorescent foreigners. The glad good news. And their message is meant with a stare just as blank as greets many preachers every Easter morning. These words, Luke tells tells us, seem to the disciples an idle tale. An idle tale, says homiletics professor Tom Long. An idle tale, empty talk, sheer nonsense, some meaningless yarn, humbug. When the women came racing back with the news, the disciples should have been prepared and eager and believing. Instead, they just yawned and checked their watch and wondered when this sermon would be over so that they could shuffle off to coffee hour, the first Easter sermon of them all. That was the church's reaction. But, of course, that's not the end of the story, right? Peter wonders. Who who wonders why he went to the tomb? Maybe he was going there to hunt down the grave robbers who stole his Lord's body. Or maybe he went just to prove these daft females wrong. But for whatever reason, he went. He stoops and looks into this empty grave and is amazed by what he sees. And that's the beginning of Easter for the church. That is the birthday of the church. So that in the Gospels, the Easter good news comes from a grim and dreary place The darkness before dawn amidst the tombstones of a cemetery at the lip of a grave. But of course, where else would resurrection happen? You can't have resurrection without death. And so, of course, naturally, resurrection comes from a cemetery. And maybe that's good news for those of us living in this day of many crucifixions, nail bombs at airports, exploding luggage, One murder of a child after another in our beautiful but violent city. Easter good news always comes from the grimmest and dreariest of places. From a cemetery or in the epistles from a prison cell. God has placed Jesus far above all authority and rule and dominion and power. What Paul wants to tell the baby church in Ephesus, you see, is that Easter was not just one good man's lucky, random, unique escape from death, but an alteration in the fixture, the shape, the structure of the cosmos. I don't know how you feel about this. People argue about this. But in the New Testament, death is not a natural part of God's creation. Death in the New Testament is a mistake. Death, with a capital D, was not part of God's original intention. Do you remember how John Donne puts it in his marvelous sonnet, Death be not proud, though some have called thee mighty and dreadful, thou art not so. Donne personifies death, capital D. Donne scolds death, capital D. And that's the way Paul is in the New Testament. Death, capital D, is not just a physical but a metaphysical reality. It is a villain to be caged up, an ontological enemy to be vanquished, a principality, a dominion 
a tyrant to be unseated, a despot to be dethroned. And at Jesus' resurrection, death, that frightening, fiendish, formidable foe, begins to die. And so this Easter good news, this Easter courage, this Easter victory comes from our, so many wonderful things come from our prison. You know the story about Henry David Thoreau? In 1845 and 1846, Henry David Thoreau lived for two years, two months, and two days in a 16 by 10 foot cabin on the shores of Walden Pond. And one day in July of 1846, Henry David Thoreau decides he needs to get his shoe repaired. So he walks a couple of miles into town, into Concord, and he goes to the cobbler's shop and he leaves his shoe there. And when he's exiting the cobbler's shop, he runs into the Concord tax collector. Henry David Thoreau hadn't paid his taxes for six years. It was his way of showing his utter contempt for the federal government of the United States. This is 1846. In four years, the federal government will pass the Fugitive Slave Act, which will require all Americans in northern states to turn over escaped free slaves to their owners, a very sympathetic government to slavery. Henry David Thoreau comes from a family of avid abolitionists, and he's just sick and tired of it. And then in 1846, the United States goes to war with Mexico, and in Thoreau's mind, this is nothing but a war to add territory in the South for the expansion of slavery, and he's just had it. And he goes to jail. He's only there for a couple of days, but while he's there, his good friend and fellow Concordian Ralph Waldo Emerson visits Thoreau at his prison cell. And Ralph Waldo Emerson looks at Henry David through the bars of his prison cell and he says, Henry, what are you doing in there? And Henry looks back and says, Ralph, what are you doing out there? Yes. All these great good news, all this great good news and courage and hope from a prison cell. I'm just going to tell you two things that, to be perfectly honest, don't have a lot to do with Easter, but they made me happy, and maybe they'll make you happy too. And they helped me to live in more of an Easter spirit, so maybe they'll do that for you too. I, I want you to know that um, I'm not finished with this yet, but I'm working on my transition to gain loyalty to local sports teams. I still like Wolverines better than Wildcats, and I still like Patriots better than Bears, but I'm making progress, and my favorite basketball player actually plays basketball in Chicago. This Chicago athlete was league MVP in 2015, led the league in scoring at 23.4 points per game, led the league in free throw percentage at 95%, 95%, third in rebounds at 8.4, third in blocks, at 2.1. Her name is Elena Deladon, and she plays basketball for the Chicago Sky in the WNBA. Last year, Elena Deladon was the Steph Curry of the WNBA. She's six foot five inches tall and 188 pounds of pure muscle. And she's a very special person. Someday I'll tell you why I admire her so much. I, I don't have time for that today, but I'll tell you one day. Someone wrote her, a little girl, wrote her and said, Elena, my brother keeps telling me I throw like a girl. What should I say to him? 
And Elena wrote back and said, tell him thank you. Yes, it's a compliment. How would you feel if somebody told you you threw like a girl? Or how would you feel if somebody told you you played basketball like a child? Bruce Fraser is assistant coach for the Golden State Warriors. And a while back, he told Steph Curry that he played basketball like a boy. I had to think about that for a minute. You probably know that Steph Curry is, one of the, is having one of the greatest seasons for one of the greatest teams ever. Some people think that this year's Golden State Warriors are the most dominant team in NBA history. And Steph Curry this year has shot 348 three-point baskets, which just obliterated his own old record from last year of 286. He hits about 50% of his three-point shots. Uh, Steph represents Under Armour, the sporting goods company. Morgan Stanley estimated that Steph Curry is worth, get this, $14 billion to Under Armour. After the Golden State practice every evening when the rest of the Warriors have gone to the showers, Bruce Fraser, Fraser, the assistant coach, feeds passes to Steph Curry so that he can take 100 extra three-point shots in the evening. He makes his way around the perimeter of the three-point line. He has 10 stations there, and he takes 10 stations from 10 shots from 10 stations until he's attempted 100 shots. One time, he made 70 in a row, 7-0. This is not human. And somebody asked Bruce Fraser, the assistant coach, what makes Steph Curry so special, and Bruce said, he plays like a child. He is just a boy. He has so much fun. He is completely self-forgetful of what's going on around him. He has no idea the size of the accomplishment he's taking on just now. So I decided I'm not going to take stuff so seriously anymore. There are shootings in Charleston and in Chicago and bombings in Brussels, but Jesus is alive and God has put him far above every rule and authority and dominion and power and given him the name that is above every name. G.K. Chesterton says, God is the only child left in the universe because all of the rest of us have grown old and cynical before our time. Why seek ye the living among the dead? The angels ask the women at the grave. In other words, what are you doing in a cemetery for Christ's sweet sake? Go out there. You will find him turning water into wine and a boy's little lunch into a banquet for 5,000 and common fisherfolk into brave heroes. You'll find him out there where people are living fully, faithfully, and fearlessly, unafraid because death is not just an end, but also a new beginning. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Amen.